Hey, everybody, what's up? It's your boy, MJ. Hey, man, I'm excited to announce a great community and platform that I've been working with called Rare Liquid. Uh, you know, a couple months ago, I was at an incredible event in Paso Robles with the Rare Liquid team and their founding artist and producer, Turtle Rock Vineyards. Uh, you might remember this was my number one wine from 2021, my famous Blackberry Cobbler a la mode motherfucker. Uh, Rare Liquid is really cool. They're building a network of artists and producers, collectors, and storage providers to solve the provenance problem for the rare wine and spirit industry. Members get access to verified limited edition drops from elite producers and can frictionlessly share, trade, gift, and monetize their collections. While for the first time in history, artists and producers can earn a royalty payment every time their bottles trade on the platform. Rare Liquid is expanding to 560 members through their invite-only Founders Club drop. You can check it out at rareliquid.club, which I'll put in the show notes. Uh, Rare Liquid has given me a limited number of membership invitations. If you're interested in an invitation and learning more, hit me up on Instagram at MJTaller, or you can just send an email to blackwineguy at gmail.com. Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a Black Wine Guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey everybody, what's up? It's your boy MJ. Welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is a Paso Robles native. He's a 100-point winemaker, and he's just an all-around great guy. Everybody, please welcome Don Burns. Uh, Don is a native son of Paso Robles. Uh, he had worked in and around hospitality for a number of years before returning home in 2008, where he went to learn winemaking from the one and only Justin Smith of Saxon. Uh, today, Don's Turtle Rock label is highly sought after. Uh, the mailing list is is kind of closed. I mean, you can get you can get on the waiting list, but you're you're not getting any wine. But get on the list; it'll be worth the wait. And uh, as I said, Don recently received his first hundred point score from Jeb Dunnick, and Don is also uh, uh, pioneering uh, the convergence of wine and blockchain uh, with the Rare Liquid Society. Uh, welcome, Don. Good to be here. Hey, man. So um, I was holding up those pieces of paper. It was all bullshit. There was nothing on it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it look good. It look yeah, very I look good, man. You know, yeah. and I, I have no teleprompter. But man, um, first of all, I I'm really excited to be here with you. Um, uh, you're someone who I became friends with over the pandemic. Um, yeah, and um, you know, uh, I heard about you through uh, Jeb Dunnick. You know, yeah. Uh, I was a subscriber, and he wrote, "If you're looking for the next big thing coming out of Apostle Robles." Um, you need to get on the turtle rock list. I did, uh, the wines came and, um, man, I might have to, uh, pull this out. I have to find it, but, um, I need to pull out my review. I wrote for your wine, but oh, um, it was great. Um, but, um, I will say, um, I know it's a little MJ Ford, but just to have to just pay, just let Don know this. So like there was that moment where, you know, um, when I was on Instagram and I didn't, I had no podcast. Right. I, I just was a guy who was taking pictures of bottles and writing reviews yeah. and pairing wine with music and, and, and um, start a review with, with some music lyrics. And I remember seeing everybody, it was the end of the year, it was like December, and everybody was like, James Suckling was doing his top, everybody's doing their top 100 wines and all this yeah. stuff. And I was like, I was like fuck it. Fuck it. Do a top 10 wines, right? <laughs> and so it was, you know, and I remember, um, I remember like everybody was thinking they knew what my number one wine was going to be of the year. And uh, a lot of people were um, shocked when it was a first, we were, we were, we're Roan heads, right? I mean, we love yeah. it all, but like yeah. we're here cause we love Roan shit. Yep. But it was a Zinfandel Tempranillo blend right. from Paso Robles 
called the Westberg Ray. I was even a little shocked. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie, you know, because uh, but uh, it it meant so much to me just because that wine uh, to me is such a great expression of Paso Robles with the fact that it's not something that people do. You know, we kind of do whatever we want out here, and I thought, what a great way to showcase Paso Robles is uh, you know just take a couple of grapes that have not historically been put together. Um, we just use them together because they do well together. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was nice to, nice to see that. Nice yeah. to see that. Yeah. I mean, I, and, I, and when we got together um, when I came out in April, I was like, I was like blown away when you're like, you're like, like you were like, cause a lot of people are like, you're like, dude, I was watching your countdown every day. <laughs> and, and I was like, and, you, and like it got to number three and you're like, shit, I know he likes the wine. Yeah. And then when it got to totally. number two, you're like, you're like, and then it was number one. You're like, fuck. Like you, like, I couldn't believe how, excited you were i'm like i was i mean here's a guy getting 97s at that point like from jeb and like 95 97 yeah and you're worried about my little top 10 yeah you know so yeah, that, I, no. I thought i thought we're kindred spirits man agreed you agreed know? no we we hit it off from the beginning and i just appreciate your your take on wine and your your real personality and you know there's so much bullshit in the wine industry yeah. that it's great when you can find someone who's just a real person and says what they think and uh isn't worried about what wines they like, you know, you like what you like and yeah. you, and you, you tell the truth. So, yeah. well, thanks man. I appreciate it. So I like to start at the beginning, man. So, uh, you're a native of Paso Robles. So you grew, you were uh, born, born and raised here. Kind of tell me how, like, no, how... I, was, I was born in LA, Okay, uh, but, uh, moved up here, uh, during eighth grade. So high school, college, uh, and then most of my years after college, um, let's back up then. So yeah. you're born in LA, man. So you're LA, yeah. you're one level, you're an LA kid. Yeah, yeah, San Fernando Valley. So yeah, just Valley, outside Valley, LA. Valley, 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 dude. Yeah, it's just Valley, dude. Like, like, why did the? That's so sexist. Valley girl. There was no Valley. I know. Dude. We didn't get any. Love. You didn't get any. It was like no. Valley bros. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So what's that like? Um. Because you said you're a '90s hip hop guy. So what was it like growing up in the Valley? You know, I I loved it when I was there. Um. Everything was close by. I could ride my bike anywhere. There was plenty of stuff to do. Movie theaters arcades, whatever, basketball court, lots of people. Um, so a lot of stuff going on. You know, my mom worked a lot, so I was able to stay busy all the time. Um, maybe too busy. I probably got in a little bit of trouble. Uh, nothing nothing bad, but, you know, it was just going out at night and, and you know, at a, at a young age, which probably wasn't ideal for my mom. And uh, at that time, her brother had moved up to Paso Robles and bought a little ranch. Uh, okay. He was good friends with Justin Smith's father, mm -hmm. so he bought the property kind of adjacent to to, to what is now James Berry. Um, and I forget what it was exactly, but there was a there was a moment where uh, she decided it was time for us to go and uh, basically dragged us up to Paso Robles and put us on this. 25 acre piece and I, I came kicking and screaming I hated it I was miserable my girlfriend was down there my friends were down there uh, I mean and you and you're and in LA dude yeah and you're LA to, uh, to skate, middle of nowhere like skate you know like the whole <laughs> skate punk culture yeah. you know hip hop culture yep and you're moving there's fucking cows out here cows right? and sticks and uh, nothing for miles yeah so you're like a latchkey kid almost right if I understand what yeah, you're saying. Yeah. So what did what did you what did your mom do for a living? Uh she was an attorney. So she uh uh my mom and dad split up when I was very young, about six months old. Wow. Um and then she went to law school, put herself through law school, uh, became an attorney, and then uh put us through school. And uh once that was over, she actually retired from law and went to work at the post office because she wanted a job that just made her feel good or just you know go through the motions and not not something that made her feel it's bad. not it's not hectic <laughs> until my whole family like most of my families worked at the post office yeah like my dad and my uncle was a postmaster but it's like it, it is uh it's a service you are providing service we all wanted because mail was important for you guys my younger yeah. listeners mail used, <laughs> used to, be, to important. be a big deal it was there was no such thing <laughs> email it was actually just it was mail yeah and like you know um god i'm so old like you had to cash check. Checks came in the mail. Yeah. There's, you know. You um, had to physically go to the bank. Exactly. Wire transfers were like for like big accounts. Like it was something like for like rich people did wire yeah, transfers. Yeah, I didn't even know what that was. Yeah. yeah. But um, that's so funny. I didn't realize she went to work at the post office. Yeah. I mean, if you just want to show up every day and, you know, good for her. Yeah. And she liked people, you know, so she got to yeah. you know, engage with people. And uh, so, yeah, it was it was great. All right. So. I, I, I see why, you know, you're a pastor Robles native, because I think kind of where you go to high school kind of determines yeah. uh, where you're from in, in a lot of ways. Um, 
So um, you left your girlfriend. What? It, what? It, so were you like a big deal with the chicks when you came over? Like you were, were you the guy from LA? Did you have like the cooler <laughs> shit than most of the guys up here? Uh, yeah, my, I dressed a little different for sure, <laughs> yeah. and uh, kind of stood out a little bit. Um, I don't know that I was the cool guy. I thought I was probably, but yeah, uh, yeah I think they all thought I was a little strange. Uh, so the first year was, you know, spent a lot of time. But fortunately, I'd met Justin, who lived on the property next door, so quickly became friends with him. So he was who I spent most of my time with. And, uh, you know, I went to a private school in San Luis, so I wasn't up in Paso okay. during the day. So but weekends, I was always up here, you know, riding the quads and out terrorizing the, the land, you know. <laughs> terrorizing land i love that <laughs> it's so different i was talking to um sam couture and like 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 you got the same thing is like you know probably got into too much a little bit of trouble like like he his family was total hippies completely complete. oh yeah that's it i don't even listen to that episode like like he's like my parents have never i don't even know if they have a lock on their front door like yeah <laughs> you know like but same thing on the quads just tearing ripping yep. up ripping shit up yeah just having fun yeah. and being outside and uh, you know and back then you could you could fill up your quad gas tank and go as far as you could that gas tank would take you there was no fences there was no yeah just all across all kinds of people property yeah, you just <laughs> drive to town yeah it didn't matter you know it didn't matter now it's not like that anymore a yeah. lot of fences now um but for a good reason i mean people no understand yeah. yeah but i hear you man um so uh what did you where'd you go to where'd you go to college uh cal poly oh so you went right down yep right okay. in slow yeah right. uh for ag business okay so um why ag business uh, I knew I could get in in an ag business. <laughs> My plan was to uh, get in under ag business and then transfer to architecture. That's, I still thought I wanted to be an architect at that time. And then I uh, just kind of stayed with ag business. And uh, didn't, I had no idea what I wanted to do at that point in my life, though. You know, we, I was working in a restaurant, put myself through school, and uh, it's just kind of where I ended up. It wasn't really a conscious decision. Yeah. Now, did you – I mean, I kind of did the same thing. I went – well, I was an athlete, so I went to the school, like – for us, it would be the equivalent, like ten minutes away, like because California's so big. Just because yeah. I got a track scholarship, I got a partial track scholarship. Nice. Didn't know what I wanted to major in. Still haven't figured that. I think I figured out what I want to do, but there was no podcast back then. There was radio, but I majored in communications. But okay, so there was some 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 of that. Some but of that, yeah. you know, but um, you mentioned um, your uncle. So it hadn't. It just you just wanted to get in, and then you were going to transfer. Like your uncle. Uh, what's your uncle's name? And Tom Westberg. Exactly. And and, but had you done any work with him as a teen? Did you ever work a harvest or help out on on? Uh, Not really with my uncle. Okay. Uh, a little bit of James Berry Vineyard. Um, at that time they were growing uh, primarily Chardonnay, and and selling it all. Uh, so this was probably eighty five or so. Yeah, that's crazy to me. I just found that out. You know, I just found that shit out. Uh, like last year. It's crazy, right? At a, at a, actually, Paso Robles Wine Country Alliance was doing a master class. And, um, and you know, Josh Reynolds, who is like... Crazy. Crazy. <laughs> Josh, you got to come, on, come on the podcast, but he's so funny. He like So he, fun to talk he's, to. He is fun to talk to. But um, they were talking about something, and I said something about, you know, we, were talk, we talked about the elephant in the room we'll get into later, which is the Graciano thing. But, yeah. but he just like... Like, I was like, I had never seen him. And I was like, that's got to be Josh Reynolds. Because he, he just started, <laughs> he just knew every fucking thing about Paso Robles. And he told us, he's like, it was Chardonnay, just Chardonnay, right? Yep. And they sold it to Champagne Dutz. Uh, a lot of it went to Fetzer. Wow, yeah. 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 So, for people listening, like, wait, Chardonnay and Paso Robles? Like, you think, right. you think at least look at what Paso Robles is known for nowadays. Yeah, the, the Rones, the Reds, full-bodied yeah, Reds. Full you know, reds. And, uh, it's funny because we didn't plan this, but that's kind of why I brought this wine. Yep. Um, I think that whites are extremely underrated in Paso Robles. Uh, I think they've got huge potential, and we're just kind of finally scratching the surface on what's possible here. Yeah, and I think um, I would agree with you. I think by and by, when most people, the average consumer, the average, the average just wine buyer, like I'll use my wife as an example. When we first started dating, she's like, "Oh, I only drink red wine." They think yeah. red wine is it. Yeah. They they don't they don't they. Everybody starts that every, way. Yeah, it's so funny, <laughs> right? You know, you go from white Zinfandel to red wine, but but like, yeah, everybody's just like, "Oh, you're, you're only serious," and they don't understand like the some of the greatest wines in the world are, are, are white wines. White wines. Absolutely. And then you know 
what 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 yeah what what are we drinking right now just tell people about the so wine yeah this is our uh, 19 willow white um willow's our daughter's name so a lot of the a lot of the wines have willow in the uh, in the in the name um this is a rhone blend so it's uh primarily grenache blanc then some Roussan, then a little bit of viognier and a touch of pick bull and the peak pool adds just a little bit of lift. Little, yeah, little lift, acidity. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it turns out that the uh, Grenache Blanc in this area really maintains its acidity well. Yeah. So you don't really need the pick pool, yeah. but um, it's also fun to put in there. A lot of people don't know what it is. It's kind of a fun, uh, you know, yeah, conversation. Yeah, people think, yeah. Yeah, like, what is pick pool? Yeah. I said, well, just, you know, but it does. It brings some acidity. Uh, we do about 18 months in a combination of new French, uh, neutral French, and a tiny bit of stainless steel. On the lees or on the lees the whole time, uh, little to no sulfur for most of its life, just a little bit of sulfur before bottling. Um, really kind of tried to make it a little bit like a, a white burgundy, but just with Rhone varietals. Mm -hmm. Um, because I wanted a, a serious white, I didn't want to just do a you know, there's so many beautiful Rhones out there, but they're just aromatic and 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 fun. You know, I want to do more of a serious white, and I think we uh, I, I think, think we you got there. think you got there, yeah. I think you got there. Okay, so. Um, so like you said, you did some work at the James Berry Vineyard, not so much with your uncle. Yeah. Um, you put yourself through school by working in, in, a re in restaurants. Is yes. that correct? Okay. Correct. So, um, after you graduate, where, what did you do? Where'd you head? So I was, uh, I was still in San Luis Obispo. I was running a restaurant in the downtown area there. And, uh, I had an opportunity to, uh, deliver a sailboat to Florida. So I actually, uh, wasn't had no idea what I want to do with my life at the time, so grabbed uh, four buddies and uh, about nine surfboards and jumped on a boat in Newport Beach and uh, went sailing for about a year and a half. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> when I hear deliver a sailboat, I'm like, oh, so you just hitched up the sailboat and yeah. drove it. No, we sailed it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was about, we, we actually left Newport Beach, and then I was actually the only one of the five guys that made the whole trip. Um, and we ended up in South Florida about a year and a half later, down right. through the Panama Canal. I was like, yeah, what's the route? So you, yeah, I just South. So we stopped in every port in Mexico, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, uh, then through the canal and then kind of, uh, straight up to Jamaica and then up through the Bahamas and back to Florida. That's like fucking sick. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. It was also scary. I was going to say, but like, <laughs> I was going to, that was the next question. I'm like. Dude, you're sailing a couple of four, four or five gringos. Yeah. You're surfing, you know, you're young. Yeah. Having a good time. But like, dude, those, you know, sketch ports are sketchy wherever you are in the world. For sure. For that reason. Like, was any, any hairy situations? There was a couple. Uh, more weather, though, too. You know, I didn't oh, really underestimate the, uh, the power of the sea. And, uh, the really bad part was that I had actually only been sailing once in my life when I took the boat and I was, I was kind of the captain. So <laughs> that's, that's what I was like, I was like, do you know, I even know like, to sail? To say I was a little naive, um, but we got through it and yeah, saw some crazy storms, you know, lightning storms, huge seas, knocked the mass in the water a few times, had some, a broken rudder, you know, just, but it, it really, I think probably did more for forming who I am as a person than, any of those years of school or anything else I've done, you know, it really kind of forced you to grow up, forced you to, to be responsible, be serious. Um, and, and just what an incredible opportunity to be able to see all those places too. Yeah. And the way you did that's a, that's, that's, that's fucking amazing. Yeah. It was fun. All right. So, um, you end up in Florida. Where, where'd you say you parked the boat? Uh, we were in Palm beach, Palm beach. Okay. So it was actually at North Palm beach. Okay. Um, and so I immediately had to get a job cause I was broke after being gone for a year and a half. And uh, Roos Chris Steakhouse was kind of right across the way from the uh, marina I was staying in. So I went there and got a job and ended up uh, working with that company for about 10 years. What did you do? Program. So did you, did you start um, uh, in the wine program or you start as a server? I started as a server. Okay. And then uh, got into, uh, they, were, they were going through a pretty big growth phase. Um, so I opened a bunch of restaurants all over the country for them. Um, and then went through, they, they used the Gallo Wine Academy. So I went through the Gallo Wine Academy program. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then just kind of worked my way up and bar manager, wine, you know, doing some wine purchasing and things like that. So, um, like, what's a wine program look at, a, like a Ruth Chris? Because 
you know, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty corporate, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you, I think you could probably predict about 90% of what's on that list. Yeah. Camus. Um, yeah. A lot of Napa cabs, Napa cabs. uh, you know, the, the general, general steakhouse, a lot of super um, Tuscans, super lot of Tuscans, Bordeaux, uh, so Bordeaux, first growth stuff too. Yeah. yeah. You know? Oh like, yeah. Like they have the money. They do. And they have the allocate, the buying the, the, power, the buying so power they, to do it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, shit. We would get like 10% of the list as a individual store to kind of hone it into nothing. nothing. Yeah. So you got like, you know, a few bottles and and usually you had a customer who wanted something and you used your 10% just to get your, you know, the people what they wanted. So that's, there's not a lot of freedom. Yeah. I was going to like, I mean like, and then like, this is uh, before the Psalm movies, everybody. So it was like, they're not these curated lists. Yeah. No, Um, this was pretty cookie cutter. Um, I want to, I want to, so I didn't even know it makes sense because everybody does like Gallo has a wine program. So like what, like, did you go off for two weeks? What, 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 what did that look like? Cause this was pre like, yeah, this like was, electronic uh, learning was around, but people, yeah, but really this was around. actually pretty much computer-based online okay, based. Yeah. Um, I think it was one of the first ones. Um, and the program was actually pretty cool in that, uh, it concentrated a little bit more on, sites growing you know kind of the big picture and not just wine analytics and and sensory evaluation and and you know region and i mean it did all that stuff too yeah. um but yeah it was a pretty good program yeah. so you're with um like what's what's it with the ruth chris group we'll call them um for like 10 years um Based out of Florida, did you as you were opening these stores, were you moving to new locations to open stores, new markets? Or? Yeah, I would leave for about two months at a time per restaurant, but I was always still based out of out of uh, the Palm Beach area. Okay. Um, and then, but yeah, as I was getting more involved in wine, you know, I was like, wait a second, I grew up and my buddy, you know, had started Saxon in the meantime, and I'd go home and see him during harvest, maybe work a day and hang out with them and just every year I did it Paso would grow a little more a little better food a little more culture a little mm-hmm. more music I started to miss it more and more and then uh met my wife and as soon as she became pregnant I was like that's it we're we're out of here we're, we're going back I want to raise my kid in Paso so Claudia's from she's from Delaware actually okay but she had relocated to Florida as well uh, so uh it's still a south. I'm from New Jersey, so Delaware South is like to me. She's still from the South. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Southern girl. Yeah. Um, for sure. Really cool. Um, and so um, during that time, though, did you have the opportunity? Because a lot of my friends who are Psalms in New York or who are the bar manager, like when someone orders like one of those baller bottles, yeah. did, did, they, did they pour you on? Like, Yeah, that was that was the one really great part of that job is I had access to a lot of wines and a lot of, you know, one thing I didn't realize in California was that, you know, everybody on the East coast drinks imports, Yep. you know, and out yep. here we drink a lot of California yep. when we get kind of like California palate, you know? Yeah. So I really got to kind of expand the horizons and, and, and try some new stuff. And we had, we had a really great clientele that had, you know, the means to, to purchase some really beautiful bottles. And uh, yeah, that was fabulous. Yeah. Anything that like, sticks out like from that time there like like a bottle a bottle that you're 95 like, reyes oh that's a good one it was it's probably to this day the best one i've ever my personally my favorite right one. Yeah. yeah that's when i realized that grenache was what it was you know yeah. it uh, definitely inspired me nice all right so um you you move back home to paso robles yep. um and you needed a job, so what did you do? Well, I uh, I went back to what I knew, so I immediately got a restaurant job. Okay. And then uh, went over to my buddy Justin's house and asked him if he would uh, teach me how to make wine, because that was my goal, was to start a winery. And uh, he said, well, I can't really afford to pay you. He's like, but you can come. So I showed up every day. Very bring, savvy of you, Justin. Bring him coffee. Getting, getting that know? free labor. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'd show up with coffee every morning and little by little start learning the process and what he did. And uh, I think it was about a year in, maybe a year and a half in, he pulled me aside and said, well, if I, if I can't get rid of you, I'm going to have to start paying you because I'm starting to feel guilty. And, and uh, yeah, so then I became uh, an employee for Saxum. And then that was 15 years ago. Damn. Yeah, it's been my 15th, That's a minute. 15th harvest. Wow. Um, so why'd you go to Justin? I mean, I mean, I, I get he's an outstanding, but like, 
um, tell me about your uncle because that is like how yeah. that's kind of like how this uh, possible was got on your map for sure. Your, your, for your sure. uncle, your mom's and, brother, and he was a winemaker as well. Yeah. So he uh, he started with Justin Winery, I believe, and then there was a winery called Creston Manor that was owned by Alex Trebek and Peachy Canyon. He was the winemaker there for a while, but eventually he landed with Diageo, and he was working at a massive facility up in San Miguel making you know huge numbers of wine so he became kind of a corporate winemaker so to speak i mean i mean and which is fine I mean, job security job he was probably one of the top paid winemakers exactly. in the area you mm-hmm. know um, and that's what he was looking for he didn't want to start a brand um, but he had had a brand in the past um, but once he started working for them there was a no competition clause so he had to kind of that's shut it down crazy, man. yeah um, so i kind of my idea was that i would kind of restart his brand okay. and, and maybe partner with him but i wanted to learn the hands-on small boutique okay. quality, um, not the, you know, chemistry, enology side, more just the, the growing and the, and the farming and the making really expressive wines for, for site. Okay. Yeah. Right on. Um, and, um, does, did, does, did he ever sell his vineyard? What, what, what became of the vineyard? He did. I kind of, we did a little work. It wasn't a big vineyard. It was probably only a few acres. Um, but there was a little bit more room to plant. And in 2014, uh, he decided to retire. Uh, he and his wife, Peggy, wanted to move to Mexico, which they ended up doing, and they sold the place, and I just wasn't in a position to, to yeah, I just I didn't, couldn't have the funds. I actually looked into it with a partner, and we almost bought it, but then, you know, my wife was like, you know, let's just do it by ourselves. And that's uh, something that, probably the best decision we ever made. Wow. Because being able to have full control not under anybody else's ideas. Oh, yeah, 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 you know, man. It's, uh, yeah. it's a big difference. And uh, it was a longer road <laughs> yeah. and a little more yeah. painful probably. But yeah. uh, I think now we're we're grateful. Yeah. That, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting to, um, similar but different. My dad had bought a piece of land, a vacant lot, and like, like um, he passed in 2012 and left to my mom. And like my mom... Uh, put in her will that like when she died like we had to sell this vacant lot um and split it uh, uh, like six ways with me and her, her grandchildren and so like it's hard for me to go past that lot now right because there's like there's like a fucking huge house on it now yeah and, and it's like, cheap, and it's all happened was... past, like, like since 2019 and just oh, like wow and so like i feel i feel you that you have only but like there's got to be for me there's just like like if you could have did it by yourself, it would have been worth it, but it wouldn't have been worth it to do it. Yeah, yeah. And it and it probably didn't fit... Your program now? The program now, and, and yeah. it would have been... You know, it would have been a nostalgic, emotional purchase, I not know. a business purchase. But yeah. I do drive by and look at it and, you know, fond memories. Yeah. And now there's a couple of beautiful houses up there. and yeah. uh, But uh, but we ended up in a great spot. Yeah, so but it, not, it got uh, you here. Yeah, so that's why I wanted exactly. more of that, that story. Okay, so... Um, uh, Justin, you know, you, you, you come on full time as an employee. Um, so, uh, what, what, like, what, what, what was your title and what's your title now at Saxon? I'm just curious. Yeah, you know, it's uh, we don't really do titles at Saxon. Oh, you know, it's kind of a. Uh, I mean, I guess I would be the assistant winemaker. Okay. Um, that's number that's, one that's homie. My title. I'm the number yeah. one homie. <laughs> but at the time, it was just myself and Justin and Mark Adams. Yep. And, uh, you know, Justin was obviously the, the guru and the lead and the mentor, um, and just such an incredible farmer and, and such great ideas and so willing to take chances, you mm-hmm. know, didn't really have any preconceived notion of how to make wine, just kind of did his own thing. So yeah, we just all worked in the cellar, went out and picked, you know, whatever we had to do to get the, the vintages done. And, you know, we have a little bit bigger team now. We have some cellar hands and, mm-hmm. and, you know, more of a HR department and, a big vineyard crew and things like that. So a uh, little less, but still pretty hands-on. Still pretty hands-on. Yeah. So um, 15 vintages. So you've like, yeah. you've seen this thing like, I mean, you've seen it evolve. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, like, um, and I would have to think, like, it's such, like you've had your hands on a lot of high-scoring wines just I, I have had. I yes. mean, even before. I mean, like setting the precedent for what you're doing now. But like, you've had your hands on a lot, a lot of, a lot of great wines. Yeah, yeah, and and seeing the evolution. You know, I think his wines are different now than they were in the mid 2000s. 
Um, I think they're getting better. I think they get better every year. Um, but yeah, it's the opportunity to, you know, I, I joke with people that the way I make wine and things I do seem so simple, you know, I don't feel like I, I have a huge role in what, what creates these wines is really the grapes doing it. But from what I've seen, you know, I guess my perception is a little bit skewed because I only know trying to make things with. I only know the best. (laughs) I only know know the best of the best. Speaking of the best, can I have a little bit more that way? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I also want to talk, you, you made a good point. You said, so with, with your Willow White, you wanted to showcase the uh, potential of white wines in the region. Um, so Justin made uh, recently, I guess you guys, about the same time you started Right around white? the same time, yeah. And it was kind of separately too. Like I, I had already found a vineyard where I could source some fruit yep. and he'd already had some in the vineyard and planted some more. So it's, even though we were working right next to each other every day, we didn't like, oh, hey, let's make a white. You right. know, he just decided to do it, and I decided to do it separately. And they are somewhat similar varietal-wise. Um, his is Grenache Blanc, Roussan, and Chenin. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, fabulous wine, but similar to... He drinks a lot of white burgundy, a lot of, a lot of Chablis, um, as do I. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, and it's great. And I mean, we had it last night at dinner. It was fabulous. His, uh, his 19 as well. Um. You said something earlier, which I, I thought was very interesting and, and kind of true, that overall, uh, East Coast versus West Coast wine consumer behavior. Um, definitely, like the wine, the wine geeks or the wine, um, what's the word? The kind of, it's like, <laughs> it's not really like the wine, I don't know, I can't think of it, but it'll come to me. But like that knowledgeable wine crowd on the East Coast, they're, they're drinking the Bordeaux, they're drinking the Bordeaux, the Burgundy, they're drinking yeah. the, the Rioja. You know, they're drinking Europe. For sure. Which makes sense because um, we're closer to Europe and New York. That's so. where it all comes in. And and, and that's yeah. and, and I've said this, people, someone questioned this, and I, I they, they said, oh, that makes sense. I was like, New York is actually the greatest wine city in the world because we get all the European stuff, but then we get stuff from the West Coast and Washington. Like, yeah. Like, like, I'm sure, like, there's not a whole lot of California stuff in Europe is my whole point. For you sure. You go to Paris, there might be a, a few bottles. Whereas yeah, we have access, limited, yeah, we have we have access to everything in New York, so that's what makes a really good wine drinking city. Um, and then the average consumer on the West Coast, you have all these fucking wineries. Yeah. So you know, um, you're just going What's up. Close. And, What's it's close. It's close. Yeah. And you know, and then like I said, the average person, like we'll go anywhere to a tasting room and buy some bottles, right? So yeah. And you can buy, not recommended. Unless it's late at night and you're trying to hook up and score, uh, you can get wine at a gas station in California. <laughs> you can, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but um, what I found when I moved out here, though, and like you said, winemakers, however, in California drink a ton of European shit. Absolutely, absolutely. The winemakers do. Yeah, we don't. Uh, I don't drink a lot of Paso wines. Yeah, you know, it's just. Uh, and for me, it's it's kind of two things. One is. Obviously, I'm tasting it. I'm around it all the time. So I want something different. Um, And the other thing is it's when I'm drinking, especially Central Coast wines, I'm working. Like I'm analyzing. It's not I'm not just having a glass of wine and enjoying it. I don't want to just I want to pop a bottle with my wife, have a couple glasses and just relax and enjoy it and appreciate the wine. Not, oh, I wonder how much whole cluster they use. Right. Because you you can't help what they pick this at. You know, I wonder what is this a northern exposure? You know, I'm just constantly grinding in my brain and, and that just takes the some of the pleasure out of it you know? totally totally so we we try to we do drink a lot of chablis yeah that's just nice. cheaper than white burgundy yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly although it's getting up there too I, well it, it all is um yeah i know that's a funny thing like sometimes like when people want to have me around i'm like i'm not fucking analyzing wines bro i came here to drink man yeah this is you know supposed to be fun yeah. it's supposed to be fun you know no. Absolutely. Um, and that's why I like hanging out with winemakers. We don't, you guys don't ask me to fucking, what are you getting in the wine? Or, yeah. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's, and that can be fun on, on, you know, if that's what the purpose is to be yeah. analyzing a wine, but <sighs> that's what we do for work. That's right. What, not what we want to do for fun. Exactly. It just so happens that the product that we make for work is the same product that we want to enjoy when we're having fun. Like, totally. <laughs> totally. And we'll drink some tequila every now and then. Yeah. You know? you know, oh, mm-hmm. Tequila still messes me up. <laughs> Um, that's every, the idea though right oh, but not in a good way like <laughs> like in like a uh, you know like a uh, like a hangover movie kind of way like so uh, what, what happened blackouts yeah I had a bad I had a really bad tequila experience when I was like 21 you never but, recovered well no I mean I did I had a margarita last week but I'm just saying yeah <laughs> um, not my go to I hear you um, that's another thing too um, 
cocktails. When yeah. I, like I'm fond of going out and get a cocktail before dinner. For sure. You know, and then champagne. I'm a big fan of that. Yeah. Um, all right. that, that whole industry has come so far too. You know, it's not like it used to be where you go get a cosmopolitan, you know, now it's, it's taken on its own life. Mixology is, I mean, massive, it, massive like all the different types of bitters and like botanicals and bartenders making their own simple syrups and, and infusions. Um, it's, it's almost, I would call it the wine effect. I think because wine has grown. I agree. Um, it's, 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 uh, caused growth in other areas, um, uh, of the beverage industry. Um, so awesome. Started drinking early. I'm like, okay, I'm getting a little, little light. Good thing I ate a bagel. Um, that's a good thing. Yeah. We haven't, um, yeah, we haven't made it past the white yet. I know. <laughs> I know. We're, we're, Mike, where are you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he might not make this he episode. He might not make it. Well, <laughs> oh, know, well. Not um, our fault. It's not our fault. Um, so you working with, uh, um, Justin, yeah. Mark Adams, shout out, just give you a shout out. I have to give you a shout out MCA over at ledge, man. Love yeah. you brother, man. Um, kind of, he was the, he, he was actually the guy I know you're fine, but he was the guy who like first reached out from here. Yeah. Um, to me and, uh, during the pandemic, during the pandemic too, yeah, yeah, yeah. and kind of really made the connection. Um, and then. And like we talked and he's like, yeah, no, I work with Justin and Don Burns. That's what I, I was like. Okay. All right. I see what's going uh, on. I see here. what's going on here. <laughs> see how you guys roll. Yeah. Um, yeah. so <clears throat> when was your, um, Oh, actually, um, who's, who's property abutted James Bear? Your, your uncles, right? Is that My uncles. Yeah. Okay. So for there's, there's people out there. Cause I have all types of listeners and I have people in the wine business, but don't really understand the James Berry vineyard. I know you don't own it, but talk about, you make a lot of wines from there. It's, I do. It, I it, make, make it, one wine pretty yeah, much. Yeah. yeah. Cause uh, he's got that fruit on lockdown. Yeah. I as, mean, as I don't blame him. Exactly. I mean, so yeah, let me see. I I'm stand corrected. You make one wine from there. And, um, but I often, uh, you know, it's referred to as an American Grand Cru vineyard. Um, like you said, it was initially planted to Chardonnay which was being sold to make sparkling yeah, wine. To make sparkling, yeah. Um, talk about the significance of James Berry Vineyard t- to you and the area in general. Yeah, I think that um well the how it how it shifted from Chardonnay was uh, a gentleman by the name of John Alban, who I'm sure you're familiar with. We love John Alban. Uh, you know, Mr. Roan himself. Yep. Uh, he approached Justin's dad and he had some suitcase clones from the Roan Valley. And asked him if he would plant some there just to see. He said, I think your site would be really good for this. So really, it was kind of the first. is before Tablas Creek came in. Um, and so some of the first Syrah in the area. And, you know, they kind of took a chance. And that's that's what's now Bone Rock Okay. Uh, for the Bone Rock, Bone Rock Terraces. Okay. Um, and it just showed the potential, I think, for sure. And then Tablas came in and started bringing more clones in. And so Rones became a little bit more available. Um, but... From a quality perspective, I think that's the first vineyard that really showed that Paso can make internationally renowned wines. You know, really, really great wines that have good acidity. Um, they have life. They have longevity. Um, we've been kind of, you know, pigeonholed as a as a region that does these fruit bombs with high alcohol and they'll fall apart. You know, we drank a 2001 last night at dinner and it was fabulous. Yeah. Still holding up. Still great. You know, and so... Then a lot of the accolades that came to Saxon, you know, primarily because of that vineyard, the James Berry Vineyard was his wine that was 100 points and wine of the year, um, really just brought eyes to the area and allowed us to grow and bring in more better vintners, better winemakers, you know, because it, it's great to have one or two great producers, yeah. but that doesn't really get the attention that you need. Um, so when you start getting groups of people, and I think that's too why Paso is such a tight community is we were all working together to try and improve the overall quality of the vineyards and the overall quality of the, of the wines. Yeah. Which is really cool. And that's a great point. I mean, that's why Burgundy is known because like you, you just about every, produ- it's, it's different because it's so small, but every producer is making great wines. Yeah. You know, I was just at a Barolo, uh, uh, tasting Barolo lunch another day. And, um, the producer was like, I don't, you know, there's not a bad bottle of wine coming out of Barolo now. Cause the region has, has worked together yep. for the quality to like everyone, all Clean ships rise and, with yeah, the tide. Absolutely. Um, and I love when you have that, that, uh, collaboration for sure. 
Um, you know, there's no like hidden information. Like, you know, Justin doesn't hide the way he makes wines, you know, it's just, it's just meticulousness and, and striving for perfection and being an incredibly talented farmer, you know? And that's another thing that makes James Berry so special is that, uh, you know, he still controls the farming on that himself, you know, before that his dad. And uh, nobody knows that dirt better than he does. And uh, I think that everybody's kind of grown off of that, you know. So they're almost like, the, I call him and Stefan Aseo kind of the two godfathers of wine in Paso. You know, I feel like just about every quality winery or winemaker in this area has touched them at some point in their career previously. So I think they kind of like started the whole thing. Yeah. Um, tell people about Stefan uh, Lavonsure for people who don't know, may not know the story. Yeah. Um, of how he, why he came here. Yeah. I, I well, the the adventure. You know. Yeah. The, the name of his wine, and uh, he was in Bordeaux. Yeah. And uh, he didn't like the idea that they controlled everything about the process. You know how. How what many, what's do. the spacing of your vines, what you can blend, what you can't blend. Um, so he came out here and settled on Paso Robles. So I'm not completely clear on the details. I think he looked at a few different areas, yeah. um, but decided on Paso and wanted to make, I think originally it was a, a Cabernet Syrah. Yeah, that's this, you know, and, and there's, you have to have folklore and myths, but that's what I heard too. Like yeah, he, I, I believe that. He really believed though, that, yeah. that was, it was, he wanted to blend. He thought the Syrah for here and the Cabernet would just, just marry so well together. Yep. And, and he was right. Yeah. He, <laughs> he was some great right. wines. Yeah. And you know, the, the, the common thread between him and Justin, they're very different in the winery. Um, but they're just both so meticulous in the vineyard. Like they're, they, they both understand that perfect grapes is the only way to make perfect wine. There's no other way around. There's no loophole. There's no, you know, there's no, but I want to make natural something. wine. <laughs> Have fun with that. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, had to, had to do the natural wine day. Yeah, there's. I mean, <laughs> I've had a couple that. I've had a few that I was like, wow, right. that's pretty good. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, I had one. I was like, wow, I'm I'm seriously impressed at your 11.5 percent Grenache that has this much flavor. I was like, I was right, like, you did like, a great I'm, job. You did it. You nailed it. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I agree, and I I even feel that way about you know some Bordeaux. Like I know I know how prestigious it is is to to drink old Bordeaux and how, what a, what a treat it is. But honestly, you know, I'll be at a dinner and there'll be a, an old, you know, first growth Bordeaux on the table and there'll be some Grenaches and some Chateauneufs and some other stuff. And at the end of the night, Listen, the Bordeaux is not in my you, glass. You, 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 exactly. You, you said it about me. I was like, that shit is tired, man. Yeah. Like, like literally when you go to those tastings, like, thank, I'm so grateful that I, I get to drink with people who, absolutely who, who are generous with their sellers and their collections. But like, you're fucking searching for a tasting note of positivity. Yeah, and that's, you know, I think that's, again, getting to what we were saying earlier about the pleasure of drinking wine. Like, I'm here to drink this wine and enjoy it. And, you know, I, I do understand the significance of tasting those wines. And, the, and I'm super grateful, like you said, to be able to try those wines. But it's not what I'm going to pick if I'm right. going to go home and open a bottle. Exactly. You know, <laughs> and, and, and there is like... This is like just timely this week. Like I said, they had they brought a 1996 uh, library wine, this Barolo tasting, and like everything was between like you know t 2010 and 2013 or 2014. Right. So they weren't super old. Right. But like the 96 was actually my favorite. But and I said I said this is rare. I was like right. I was like I I said I I I'm not on. I said I like I like. I like older women and younger wines. Like I'm the yeah. opposite of most dudes. You're, you're backwards. Who are, yeah, I'm backwards. Yeah. Mo most dudes who are like, you know, with money. Uh, well, because I don't have money, maybe that would change. Um, <laughs> but um, and I said, but I got to be honest. Like it still. I said we they, we caught it on a good day. The yeah. fruit was there. Yeah. Um, I, I like, think Barolo is a good example of that too. Like right. some wines, I think do handle age right. and and still show fruit yeah. but i i do i like fruit in my wine me too as i, I i've I like always said and fruit and when i started i was like listen a grape is a fruit so i need some fruit in my wine first and yeah. foremost i love how grapes are conduits for other flavors but we got to start there first let's I, start with i don't want to have to dissect a wine to try and find the good traits exactly you, you know. know i want to just put it in my mouth and be like wow this yeah. is this is exciting exactly yeah so you've said this a few times um and I think it's worth um, delving into is 
I think when people think winemaker, you know, um, especially when you see the Italian dudes are always like dressed, you know, fucking yeah. ascots and everything, all that shit. But like, you've mentioned farming for sure. Talk about the, like, talk about, and you said this, you know, perfect wines come from perfect grapes, but, but like, for people who don't understand, like, like I remember meeting Gary Pisoni. He said, "I'm a farmer. Why you want to come visit me?" This was in 1999. Yeah. So, like, talk about the role of farming because you mentioned agriculture. So, dazzle us with your knowledge. Well, talk I, about talk about the role of farming and actually the final product. Yeah, I think that um, kind of the simplest, the most simplistic way to look about it is I I often compare it to uh, like a peach tree. You know, one one of our biggest generally when, when you're when you're purchasing grapes, there's the farmer and there's the winemaker, and there's always this this kind of conflict of the farmer wants to grow more fruit to make more money, the right. winemaker wants to grow less fruit, you know, and that's just one aspect of the farming. But the quality comes from that kind of peach tree. If you don't thin out your peaches, if you grow all the peaches it wants to produce, they never get ripe, they don't taste great, you know, or you just get a tree that only throws a few peaches and you taste that peach and it's fantastic. It's pretty similar with fruit load. Um, but as far as you know, how you take care of the soil, the site itself, you know, where is it? Um, you can't have, you, you can't be growing fruit for the masses and expect to make something special. Um, and I think really when people started switching over to what we call acreage contracts, acreage contracts, at least for purchasing fruit, mm-hmm. it allows us to control the farming on the fruit that we're producing and we're not buying tonnage we're just buying an area and we get to control the farming and i think it's really important too to know your specific area i don't think you can just be a great farmer everywhere you know if i went to walla walla i it would be a whole new learning Learning curve curve, you know and uh like for me willow creek district is kind of where i lay my hat and that's because that's what i've been around my whole life i've been around james berry um i understand how that area works how how we can produce great wines there um, but yeah, the, the farming is really everything. And the, the other example I use is, uh, you know, if you take a steak, if you get a, uh, just a regular supermarket steak, take it home, pound it, tenderize it, marinate it, put it on a most expensive grill in the world. It's still just okay. You go buy a prime ribeye, you know, from a producer that, you know, does a great job, a little salt and pepper and a few minutes on each side. And it's the best steak you ever had. That's how I look at the grapes, you know, the, the higher the quality of the fruit and picking it at the optimum time is really the biggest thing that I do in the winery. You know, it's not what I do in the winery. It's, it's, it's getting that fruit at the right time and take and nurturing it, you know, just letting it become what it wants to become. Right. So speaking of which, um, we'll drill down on Willow Creek in a, in a moment here. What is it, um, about Paso Robles that makes it such a unique, uh, overall unique terroir. I think, uh, a theme that runs through. Yeah. And I mean, I, I kind of specifically, uh, some of the Western, more Western. Right. So there's, there's a East side and West side side and a West side. Yeah. And it's, it's two different expressions. Um, I think what makes the West side unique is, uh, obviously the soil. We have, uh, uh, soil, uh, high lime content, uh, shale, fractured shale, which is great for the roots. Um, so a really good growing medium for the grapes. Um, and then also we have those huge diurnal swings with what we call the Templeton Gap, you know, similar to Chateauneuf de Pop with lemon straws. Um, it can be 98 degrees during the day and it can be 50 degrees that night. So those grapes, you know, they're not just constantly building sugar, building sugar, building sugar. You're going to have to pick them. They're building sugar. Then they get to rest at night. They get to develop their phenolics. They get to become physiologically ripe and not just sugar ripe, you know? So we don't even look at sugar when we're picking grapes. We're looking at taste and flavor and tannin structure. Yeah, because that's typically, and I hate to go there, but like like everybody's talking about, like when you look at harvest and, and you know, if you look at, like Instagram is a good place to do this just because people are posting yeah. that shit, right? But like, you know, I'm not, I don't care what bricks you pick at. I care how much flavor you get in your fucking wine. Exactly. Right. And every site gives you a different level of bricks and some sites might give you different levels of bricks from year to year. You know, I might pick at 25 and a half one year. I might pick at 27 and a half the next year. It just, 
we don't we're not out there with a you know a little tool testing sugar every day. We're just eating the grapes and deciding is it ready? Do we like it? Yeah. You know, are the tannins where we want them to be? Is the acid still there? Is the and I think that's another thing with those cold nights is we have the ability to hang fruit for a long period of time because our acid doesn't fall out. So a lot of regions in the world are picking because the acid's dropping out of the wine and they have to pick. We don't have that problem, so we can really go for optimum flavor and aromatics and, and tannin structure and know that it's still going to have acid. So, uh, like, how did that, where did this notion that um, Paso wines uh, are just one note and lack of acidity come from? I mean, is, is, I would have to say it's got to come from, no, I want to hear where you think it comes from. Because you're from here. You make wine from here. Yeah. I I'm would, insignificant yeah. in this question. <laughs> Remove yourself. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know for sure, but I would guess that a lot of the wineries in the area in the early days were um, farming larger production vineyards. They didn't really have the viticulture practices that we use now. Um, it's probably a mix of east side and west side fruit, you know, probably overcropped. And I think there was this big push for Zinfandel at the time, too. And I was kind of like when the Zinfandel craze was going on and people wanted these big, juicy fruit bombs in. And I think there was a lot of people making that. And it was what they sold and kind of what it got known for. Mm -hmm. um, it was good. I mean, I guess a lot of people were able to sell wine and it did bring some wine to the, to the region. But I think it also just really kind of started us off on the wrong foot as far as connoisseurs who were looking for things with acid and balance and uh you know I, I don't think people think of paso even prior to this day of wines with a ton of balance and i think our wines have incredible balance mm -hmm. um and you mentioned you know brick levels the other thing is our alcohol content you know we do have <coughs> yeah, slightly you know, higher alcohol yeah. um don't fuck around in paso if you're that's... an amateur <laughs> you'll, 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 yeah it'll 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 get you pretty good i remember i remember um like I mean, I'd been here when I lived out in Santa Barbara. I actually went over to Tablas for a lunch with Robert Haas, which was really cool. Yeah. But I remember when I came out in April of 21, we sat down for the first time. Um, and uh, it was Easter. I didn't, you know, it's just me and my wife. You know, I, I have a grown daughter and a child doesn't live at home. So we didn't. We don't really celebrate Easter. Or like, so we were like, right. I didn't even know when I came out. But like, I remember stopping um, to see MCA. He was at. Him and C were at their uh, in-laws' house. Okay, and uh, and uh, like he had like some great shit. He had some Bandol Rosé. He had the Bandol Moved. And he's like, "Can I get you anything?" I was like, "No, just some water." I went for my water. He's like, "Oh, he's like, you got the Paso shakes." <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it like, was on the way out of town. Yeah, yeah, it was on the way out of yeah. town. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the wines. I mean, they are incredibly balanced. But just be careful when you come here because like there's they are there's a higher. fair amount of stuff. I mean, there's a fair amount of stuff over fourteen. Yeah. Even you know, over fifteen, and I was gonna. I mean, I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not. I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem with that either. Know? I mean, yeah. I, I don't want. I didn't want to scare people, but yeah, like most of the the good shit is over fifteen. So you know, and and when I see people that we have, we have people that come in like, oh, what's the alcohol content? And I said, well, taste the wine first. Exactly. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, the, is it integrated? Can right. you tell there's alcohol? Right. Is it burning your nose? Is it? Right. Is it? Are you feeling it on your on your palate? You know, and and I think that our wines hold so much fruit and have so much character that the alcohol is integrated and it, and it is a balanced wine. Totally. Speaking of um, balanced wine, let's, let's taste some reds, man. Sure. What, what, what do we got for reds? We've got, uh, what'd you bring? I brought a couple things. I had to bring the Westberg. Red. You had to bring the Westberg. I had to bring that. That's the 20. It. Yep. Uh, I've got the Willis Cuvée, which is our kind of CDP type blend. Yep. Yeah, and then I brought the, uh, the G2, G2. Syrah. Which uh, order should we taste these in? I'd say let's do the, uh, the Willis first. Okay. Perfect. So Grenache, Syrah, Mervedra, and some Graziano. Oh, so good. We get to get in the, the Graziano. <laughs> oh my God, that is so. Just, um, and I did kind of. It, bring, do, it really does. It. I mean, it's it. It's got a Shadow Nuff esque thing going on. Obviously, it's clearly Paso Robles, right? But it's dialed in. You know, you got that anise, that spice, and and like you know, Shadow Nuff. I love the color on this thing. What's the blend on this? Uh, I'm gonna have to look. That's okay. And I don't have my glasses, so you might have. Okay. To read it. <laughs> oh man, we both got. I got older air size. It's always yours, Grenache so. heavy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. This is 48 Grenache, 23 Syrah, uh, 15 Mataro, and 14 Graciano. Okay, so um, it is Grenache dominant. 
Um, it, I like that it's, um, you know, you got four different varietals in there. Although, at the end of the day, it's what does it taste like? But I, I right. It is an homage to Shout Enough, which they got like 13 red grapes they can blend. Yep. Um, and and a lot of people are just going to, you know, which is fine because the wines are delicious. But yeah. It's fun to see. This is kind of like a throwback to old style Shout Enough. Sure. Yeah. More than two grapes in it. And we, uh, you know, there's a lot of grapes in all of our wines because we do co-ferment everything. We don't do, we rarely do a single varietal of any, any grapes. Yeah. Yeah. Right, bass plums, bro. And I, I did want to bring 20s because I know 20s are a kind of a hot They're topic. They're a hot topic you know? right now. And uh, we were really, really pleased with our 20s. And uh, we did throw some wine away that we felt like had smoke taint. We yep. actually tested all our wines and realized that it's such a, a crapshoot that we went straight on sensory. And uh, anything that we felt like had any smoke at all, we just threw away. Oh, good Lord. With so, good Lord, because... I said really ripe um, black fruits, blackberry plums. So big boy, fifteen seven. Yep. No heat, but the acid. There's no cloying. It's just like, yep. Crisp and clean, no caffeine. Feeling turtle rock. Yeah, yeah, and that's what we can do here. You know, you can. Most people produce a fifteen seven wine, and it just falls off the back. Yeah. You know, there's just nothing there. Yeah. Um, but we have such great acidity. In the grape, so all right. So, um, fortunate. What are some of the fruit sources in Willows? Willows is uh, primarily G two and a uh, vineyard called um, Cruise Vineyard. Okay, which is Jack Creek Winery's uh, estate vineyard. And is that the J A K Jack 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 Creek? Yeah. yeah okay. Um, and it's actually the further the furthest west vineyard in the Willow Creek Appalachian. So it's a little bit cooler. That's what I just picked last week. It's always the last thing to come off the vine. Um, but it really gives you great red fruit aromatics and and soft tannins and it's uh, it's a great spot and probably a little bit of James Berry in there too. Okay, and and so, um, what's the difference between Mataro and Mavedra? So Mataro is really just California Mavedra. Um, okay, it was it was all Mataro here. Yep. Um, at one point, and I don't think we were even allowed to use Mavedra on the labels. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once it was possible to start calling things Mervedja. Everybody kind of jumped on the bandwagon. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but we do it for kind of two reasons. One, uh, Saxon kind of did it at the same time, or he actually did it before me. And, and you know, he was like, you know, I think we've given the French enough credit. Let's, let's go back to our roots. Um, that's one reason. And then the other is we actually use a clone that is Mataro. So it's actually the, the clone came from the old California Mataro on the vineyards. Okay. That's what we so planted now, in the vineyards. So now, I mean, are you, you're not a... What's the word? I don't know. You're not a grape professor. No. As as I'm drinking 15-7 at, uh, it's not even noon. <laughs> um, it's Paso. Yeah. Um, actually, it is, it, actually, it is past noon. Um, oh, perfect. It's another glass. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what's maybe Mataro Mavedra Monastrol? Yeah. So that would be California- Spain, French, France, and Spain. Okay, so yeah. it's, it is. They're all kind of related. Yeah, they're, uh, genetically, they Gen- are all okay, related. Okay, okay. Yeah. So speaking of genetics, um, what's Graciano? For <laughs> where's it from? Or Monastrell? Uh, yeah. Or, oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, from Spain. Okay. And uh, Graciano was was a happy mistake. I'm sure you've heard the story of uh, most of the Monastrell planted in California in the last 15 years is actually Graziano, but mm-hmm. we all were under the impression that it was the Spanish clone of Mervedra. Um, actually, Justin Smith was the one that, that diagnosed it. We were sitting outside the winery one day looking at the vineyard, and we had the Monastrell right next to the Mervedra, and we're like, they're just, they're just not the same genetics. Like, they're just so different. You know? we, and we loved the Monastrell for what it gave us, but it was just different, and he did some research, and I think it's, I think it's Graziano. So we picked a leaf, sent it off to Davis, and had it DNA'd. And sure enough, it was Graziano, which created a huge shitstorm. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> There's some people that are still not happy about that. Um, we didn't really care because we still, we've actually planted Graziano since then. Yeah. Um, and use it. It's a great, uh, it's great for color and acid and bright cranberry. Um, it's a, it's yep. a beautiful grape. Um, so, so we love it. Yeah. But some people that were making were veg based wines. 
that were no longer Mervedra based wines. They were like, well, we're still going to call it Mervedra. And, and, and I get it, you know, and I, I, again, does it really matter? Yeah. I if mean, the wine's great. You know, I mean, for me, Graciano is, I mean, I love Moved, but it's, it's a little bit sexier. Like to find Like, I love that. It's kind of like, yeah. it's kind of like you, Justin was sitting there. He's like, I don't know. That other kid kind of favors the milkman, right? Like, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. It's like the, the mother's yeah, the it, same, it kinda, but yeah. Mervedra notoriously has a, a, the acid fall off. Yeah. Graziano has a ton of acid, yeah. so they actually do well together. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm hearing this something in the background. Yeah. And so actually been going for a minute, so actually might be time to take a quick break. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list.